Hey everybody, hey everybody, how are you guys doing? I'm Colleen Fabry and this is Venture Europe. Venture Europe is a series of conversations with successful entrepreneurs, investors and ecosystem contributors where we discuss about the strategies, tactics, frameworks and failings that they have used and experienced during their journey. It is my personal vendetta to contribute in making Europe one of the most attractive entrepreneurial ecosystems in the world. Big words, hard work, so let's get started. Before introducing our guest today, I'm super excited to tell you more about Vauban. I'm excited because of two reasons. One, they're our first sponsor. Thank you, thank you, Vauban. Meaning that things are getting more serious with Venture Euro Podcast. And second, because they're offering facilitates the formation of capital, which is key for a thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem. Vauban is the easiest way to launch and run your venture investing an all-in-one integrated solution to form syndicates, VC funds, and co-investment SPV programs that are built for the next generation of global venturers. From fundraising to exits, Vauban provides an automated back office that handles the legals, banking, investor onboarding, and administration, which allows their clients to focus on what matters, finding the next unicorn and building investor relationships. Vauban has facilitated over $1 billion of capital invested in companies such as Revolut, Bolt and Airbnb, among others. Find out why funds like Antimis, Octopus Ventures and Backed VC, among others, are using Vauban by heading to vauban.io, that is V-A-U-B-A-N.io. And now, let's go and find out more about our next guest. It is with such a great pleasure to present my guest today, Nina Ashadian, partner at Index Ventures. Before joining Index, Nina was a financial planning and analysis lead for Google's AdSense team, where she managed a multi-billion dollar book of business covering Amazon, eBay, and IAC. Nina started her career as a high-yield bond trader at Citigroup, and she also started High Ventures, the first seed venture fund focusing on Armenian entrepreneurs, where she invested in over 30 companies. At Index, Nina focuses on venture and growth investments in enterprise SaaS, vertical SaaS, and AI. She is excited by the combination of software and payments to help legacy industries transition from using pen and paper workflows to adopting more modern, vertical-specific solutions. Nina works with transformational companies like Service Titan, ShopMonkey, Gong, and DeepScribe. During this episode, we discuss about vertical SaaS, busy career advice, and how to separate a great pitch from a great founder. Please enjoy this excellent conversation with Nina Ashadian, partner at Index. Let's get started with, with the first story. So tell me how you decided to leave Google and found Hive Ventures. What was the debate in your head? I can tell you Google is a very tough place to leave. It is an incredible workplace with amazing culture and super smart people. And maybe the story really begins before that. So I started my career as a high yield credit trader in New York and London. High yield bond trading is really taking bets on companies that are either going bankrupt or emerging out of bankruptcy. It's kind of the opposite of venture capital, right? It was amazing to me to have the opportunity to 
listen about, to learn about companies and basically figure out, is this an investment that I really want to make and have conviction around? So that was kind of my training. But I realized after doing that for three and a half years that I really had no idea how a successful tech company was, you know, operated at scale. And so was really fortunate to get a job at Google where I got to work on their core revenue generating part of Google, which I can tell you is a very different Google than like massages and moonshots. It's like where Google prints money ads. And I was on the AdSense team working in a finance role and literally did not know anything about venture capital. It's not on my radar. I was super enjoying the operating side. I loved being part of a cross-functional team. But I'm Armenian by background, and I have a very obviously Armenian last name. And uh, there weren't a lot of Armenians at Google at the time. I think there were 30 of us. And so I'd get all these cold emails from entrepreneurs sitting in Yerevan that were like, hey, you know, Google just launched this like app store, the Play Store, but Armenia is not on the approved country list. Can you help us figure out how to do that? Or, hey, PayPal doesn't work in Armenia. Could you help us figure out, do you know anybody at PayPal that could help us accept payments on our website or our app or whatever it is? And then finally, there were some that were getting into Y Combinator. And this was like 2012. It was really hard to get into Y Combinator. There weren't a lot of international companies getting accepted. And they didn't have money for the plane ticket to come to San Francisco. And so I started to think like, gosh, some of these you know, companies are amazing. And having in my background, always being a trader and an investor, I was like, there's got to be some fund or something that invests in these companies and helps them kind of get to the first stage of company building. So I kind of looked around and at the time there really wasn't anything that was focused on international startups at that stage, like pre-seed and seed, especially nothing in Eastern Europe or Armenia. And so I started to just imagine if I could do it myself. And I was 26 years old. I literally did not know anything about venture capital. I got very lucky with a few people uh, taking a bet on me and I raised a $10 million seed fund, which then was my first uh, foray into venture capital. And I fell in love with it. And that's how I eventually ended up at Index Ventures. What was the first year as a VC like? So you didn't know anything about the space. You just saw the opportunity, a lot of great entrepreneurs. You raised the fund. How was the first year like? People don't realize actually how hard it is, even when you're giving money away for free, for people to take your call. I had to work so hard to even get meetings with entrepreneurs. I didn't have a platform. I didn't have a brand. You know, I was nobody. So I was sending cold emails. I was you know, saying like, hey, I have this fund, you know, we're focused on for now Armenian entrepreneurs. And if you're not Armenian, we can still give you money and help you find, let's say, Armenian engineers, which are excellent, much more cost effective than, let's say, hiring in Silicon Valley. And so I had to constantly sell myself. And that is really hard to do, you know, and it gave me so much appreciation when I actually got to an institutional platform that had a brand and had recognition and had resources where I was like, oh my goodness, it's so nice to have entrepreneurs like, emailing us and wanting to meet with us. And so it was definitely trial by fire. I learned a lot. I think it taught me a little bit of what it's like really to go from nothing to something in a year and also how lonely that journey can be, right? You know, a lot of entrepreneurs talk about the loneliness of building a company or even if they have co-founders when they're eventually CEO, it's tough to be the person that has to own a lot of those decisions. And so I got a very small dose of that, but again, ultimately loved it. And just the, the feeling of being able to play a tiny role in changing the trajectory of perhaps like a really early stage founder by an intro or, you know, helping them get to a certain area or a certain customer signing up was really exciting. 
No, I definitely see the difference when you're a small fund and you try to reach out to top entrepreneurs that it's very hard to get them to answer because probably they have a bigger pool of choice that they can choose between different investors. Do you remember an example with an entrepreneur when you were at Hive that you would try to reach out and you try to pitch him or her and do the sale? There's so many examples. I had to think quite a lot about what is the specific genuine and authentic thing I can say to this individual to ask them for 30 minutes of their time. If you think about that, it's actually very difficult because you have to guess what matters to that person. You also have to guess like, you know, maybe what the gaps are in terms of the other investors that they have. For me, I felt like, and I would give this advice to anybody who's starting like a solo GP or a seed fund, you have to have a very clear value proposition. So for me, it was, I'm going to help you find engineers in Armenia. Or if you were Armenian, it was, hey, come be part of this fund. We're supporting Armenian entrepreneurs and you know, people would fall in love with the mission. So you have to have the niche focus that no one else has. And that value proposition has to be extremely clear. I think today the value proposition of like, oh, we help you with hiring and, and all of that is kind of table stakes. And then the second thing is you really have to build trust with the person at the end of the day. You know, they really want to know that you're going to be there through thick and thin. They want to know what kind of a person you are, what your character is. And so I think all of those things come together. And that's what eventually led you know, companies to take a bet on me. And two years later, you joined Index Ventures. How hard was it actually to reach out to entrepreneurs? And how did that dynamic change? Well, first, I should tell you, it was very hard to get into VC. You know, I had Google on my resume, I'd gone to Harvard, I'd started a seed fund, but still I interviewed at a bunch of different VC funds. And what I would tell anybody listening in the audience that's considering a VC change is just be aware that sometimes with joining venture capital funds, you really have to be the missing puzzle piece that they need. So for example, if your domain expertise is fintech, you know, they might already have like five fintech investors. And even though you might be phenomenal, it just, it's not additive to their team. I was so excited to join Index. I think for me, what really attracted me to the firm was, one, the fact that Index was one of the first firms to you know, start in Europe. And they believe that European entrepreneurs are just as good as Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, which at the time was a completely contrarian view. There were basically no big venture capital funds in Europe. So I loved that, that ethos and that DNA of the firm that entrepreneurship can come from anywhere, because that's exactly what my thesis had been, you know, investing in Armenian entrepreneurs. Second, it was amazing to go to a place where most of the, or actually all of our team members had a very global citizen mindset. I think we speak like, I don't know, crazy, something like over 30 different unique languages in our team globally, which is so amazing. And a lot of us have spent time living in different countries, growing up in different places. So when I finally got the opportunity to join Index, I felt so grateful to be part of a platform which already had this reputation. And it was incredible just to see entrepreneurs that were so excited to take a meeting with Index. And that's something that we never take for granted. We have to earn it every single day especially as you know, the landscape gets more competitive with all different types of capital providers. It's something that you know, is one of our core values where we just need to earn the right every single day to even have the opportunity to invest in amazing entrepreneurs. And do you remember what were the first six months like at Index? 
terrifying. (laughs) I would be lying to you if I didn't say I had major imposter syndrome, right? I joined and I was like surrounded by all these people who had amazing track records of just investing in incredible companies. And I was new and, you know, venture capital is a very ambiguous job, right? You join, you get a blank calendar and it's like, go make money for the firm. And that's actually for, you know, and it attracts a lot of type A people like venture capital in general and type A people are like, okay, tell me where the goals are. What are the goalposts? When do I need to hit those? And like, I'll put my head down and I'll do it. There's not really that in VC. Of course, me coming from Google, I tried to like break down the ambiguous problem to like OKRs. I was like, okay. I was like, what do I need to feel confident at this job in the first year? And the first one was, I got to do a deal. I just got to like show the team I can source a deal, get conviction and win a deal. And my first deal in my first year was Service Titan, which we can talk about in a little bit. Second was I need to build founder references. And this is where I think a lot of people get stuck because they're like, oh, how can I build founder references if I don't have like a huge portfolio? Well, I was like, I'm going to work with any entrepreneur in our portfolio. It doesn't matter if I led the investment or not, if I can add some value, you know, make them be a reference as well, which was so awesome. And then the third thing was I really wanted to own a strategic project internally to help make the firm even better. And so that kind of helped me the first six months get my bearings. I would say the first six months, I probably took 10 meetings a day because I was just like, oh my gosh, the amount of inflow is incredible, which is really great because I, you know, I would suggest that for anybody going to a venture capital firm for the first time, because you kind of like build your filter pretty quickly. It was definitely drinking from a fire hose. And do you remember your first meeting with uh, Ara? Well, I had known Ara and Vahe actually in college through some mutual friends between like Stanford and Harvard and USC, Armenian, uh, (laughs) you know, clubs, like student clubs. And so I had been tracking them for a while, had known them socially. And when I got to Index, I was like, team, there's this company in Glendale, California. They're like, where? They're building software for plumbers and electricians to run their business. And at first people were like, Nina, you know, how big is this market? This isn't really what we do, you know, vertical software. It's like, why would you build software for one customer only, one type of industry? And I was like, you just guys, we just got to meet these guys. And, but Aran Vahe had already, all of their insiders were basically really excited to continue giving them money. And they were like, Nina, we love you, but like, we don't want to do a presentation. We don't need to because our insiders are already willing to give us a term sheet. And so I basically worked for six months to send them every like talented person I knew that was leaving either like Google or Wall Street or my you know university. I kept internally talking about like doing market analysis and talking about this team. And finally, I convinced Aran Vahe to go to dinner with a few of my partners. And what they didn't know at the time was that, you know, we were evaluating them in a way. And I'm sure they actually did know because they were doing a great job selling us. And after we left that dinner, across the board, my team was like, we have to back these entrepreneurs. And that's how we ended up, you know, raising, leading their Series D round. How did the impression of a vertical SaaS change within the team now? In the past, like I mentioned, most people were very skeptical about vertical software because of the market. So one was the point that I made of, why would you build a company just selling to one customer? And then second was a lot of these industries, you know, if you think about oil and gas, healthcare, education, home services, a lot of them are run by what most people think of as small businesses. 
the thinking at the time was, well, these small businesses, they don't really want to adopt technology, their legacy, they don't really change. And I think like Shopify really just crushed that notion. So Shopify came out, you know, they did the impossible. They built software for retailers, right? That, you know, mom and pop shops on the street and by providing them a beautiful website and the integration with payments, and now they do so much more. I think two things happened. One, we had like one amazing company come out that, and MindBody was early too, I should say, right? Software for a lot of these yoga and uh, fitness studios. So we had two great examples come out that was like, hey, maybe there's something here in these massive markets. And then the second thing that happened is the advancements of fintech infrastructure. So the beauty of vertical software is not only can you sell software to these businesses, but once you become their system of record for any kind of workflow where they're living and breathing in your SaaS tool, they start to come to you and ask you to do payments. Like, hey, instead of us using this other POS system, you have all our customer data, you have our CRM, can we just integrate our payment processor with you guys? And I think Stripe and Adyen made that super possible. So now all of a sudden the TAM like quadrupled because it wasn't just SaaS revenue where you're like, how many SMBs times average SaaS contract value per year? But now it's like, wow, imagine if we could process and take a tiny percentage of every dollar that flows in and out of this business. And so those couple of things, plus the fact that Service Titan was such an amazing company, I think kind of gave a lot of credibility to the venture ecosystem that this is a model that works. And so all of those things coming together, I think, really changed the perception of vertical software. And now, I mean, you have companies like Procore, Toast, Benchling, ShopMonkey, Monograph, like a whole bunch of different companies that are like, we're going to build software for these particular industries because these individuals want a product that's built by people like them for people like them. And that's been, I think, an incredible tailwind to invest behind. Just to take a step back, I really like the framework you have used during a CNBC interview regarding the Act 1, Act 2, and then Act 3 in the cloud adoption and digital transformation. Could you please describe the framework and then also maybe paint a picture of what the future of vertical SaaS looks like and what problems are yet to be solved among those that you just mentioned? So Act 1 was really the shift from on-premise to the cloud. And believe it or not, we are still so early in that. You know, it's almost wrong to call it Act One because it's still happening. I think the CEO of AWS told, put out a statistic out there that 85 to 90% of workloads are still on-premise. So that's kind of like Act One, like AWS, GCP, Azure. Act Two is like the application SaaS layer, where it's like, okay, now like a lot of these workloads are in the cloud. This is where we had stuff like, you know, Dropbox, DocuSign, a lot of these like horizontal tools that really help process information in the cloud. And Act Three is what I think is going to be vertical software, where people are really tired of using like 50 different horizontal tools to do their job. They really want one tool that kind of does most of the things that they want. And that's why I think there's going to be just an enormous shift of companies really looking for that industry specific cloud solution rather than like a one size fits all. It does like 20, 30 percent of what I need. And then I have to buy this other thing that does the other 30 percent. So I think the future is vertical SaaS for a lot of these industries. And in vertical SaaS specifically, I think we will continue to see the merging of software plus fintech. I think we're just on the surface of the fintech part. Like imagine I invested in an amazing company called Check, which basically they enable vertical SaaS companies to process payroll 
for their customers. So now it's like, you don't need a separate payment processor. You don't even need a separate payroll provider. We will do it all because we have the timesheets of everybody. We know all your employees. We know your price book. And so I think the embedding of fintech within vertical SaaS will continue to be really the next chapter and future for vertical software companies. Any areas or verticals that get you excited? There's so many. There's one we haven't announced yet, but I'm really excited. It's in the agriculture space. And so basically what they're doing is they're providing a software solution today to help automate a lot of the labor contracts for produce growers in the United States, which right now is incredibly manual, done with pen and paper. And there's all this regulation where you have to keep the documents for like seven years. So all these like strawberry farmers have like warehouses of, you know, paper that they have to save for seven years of every strawberry picker that's worked for them in the last, you know, a uh, couple of years. And so I think that's really interesting. Agriculture. I do think healthcare is very interesting. Like Benchling is a great example. Benchling is providing a best-in-class R&D collaboration software for scientists in the biotech world, where it's making it easier and faster to bring great drugs and solutions to market. I think that oil and gas is super interesting. We haven't made an investment there yet, but you know they have tons of data. And they're dealing with very complex workflows that a lot of it is like emails, Excel files. I think the dairy industry is very interesting. So there's a lot of industries that are huge. And when you start to think about it, you're like, wow, these guys are, would love to use a software solution, but no one has built one yet. So lots of opportunity there. So do you think that Act 1, Act 2, and Act 3 will all go in parallel? I think, yeah, I think the opportunities are big enough where I don't think it's like a graduation, but I think it's a compounding factor, right? So as it gets easier to shift to the cloud, more and more small businesses will be willing to put their data, you know, into like a application layer software and then over time move to something that's like an A to Z for what they need. You're now eight years uh, in uh, your role as an investor after you left um, Google. How did your assessment of founders and markets change? since you chased uh, ARA? So many learnings. One, just in general, investors get it wrong all the time, myself included. So having a lot of humility that we could be totally wrong. On markets, I used to pass on a lot of investments because of TAM, where I'd be like, I'm not sure. I did this Google bottoms up of like how many businesses times the price today. And I think it's very easy to miss the big picture on tailwinds that drive markets. And it's very easy to underestimate TAM. So that's probably lesson number one on market. On entrepreneurs, I've learned to segregate a great pitch from a great founder. You know, there's some founders that are like, oh my goodness, incredibly charismatic, right? They could like sell ice to an Eskimo. And that's an amazing skill. Don't get me wrong. Being a salesperson helps you with recruiting people, with fundraising, with closing customers. And it's actually a very important skill. But I think that there's these salt of the earth entrepreneurs who, you know, one of the filters that I've learned from one of my partners is that if this entrepreneur is turned down by every venture capital fund, are they still going to run this business? And, you know, when you use that and you look at this person in front of you and you're like, wow, this person is going to run through walls, even if they're rejected by everyone. Like, I think the Robinhood founders are a great example about that. I think they notoriously were turned down by like 75 investors or something for their seed round, and they still decided to run the business. I think that 
that type of commitment really shines through. And it's something that I look for today that I wouldn't have necessarily known to look for in my early days as an investor. So actually, I'm in the early days, so I'm still charmed by a good salesperson. How do you check actually for the grit? Do you look on background or reference calls? I think it's uh, one, some subtle signs of, for example, like how quickly they turn around, you know, an information request because they're really focused on getting this fundraising done and getting back to their business. Second, you can really tell by the people they've hired. You know, there's this um, quote that I learned at Google, which is like A people hire A plus people, B people hire like C people. And I think that's so true. So I spend a lot of time looking at the team that they've gathered. And then third, I think if you really drill down, if the person fundamentally understands how this can be a really good business, like they understand the core drivers of that business, like what is like the number one metric I need to be obsessed by because that's like the leading indicator of success. I think that gives you a really good sense. And then I spend a lot of time knowing, uh, like getting to know the person on a personal level, like what are their motivations? What drives them? What have they done in their life that has like led them to make this decision? Do they have a, a real passion for this space? Or if not, are they just like an incredibly savvy business person that has done a ton of work and built domain expertise and knows exactly why this is a big opportunity. So I think the takeaway is founders come in all shapes and sizes and you just need to be, you know, you need to look for the clues that give you a sense of this person is the real deal. Let's uh, change gears a little bit um, and I'll have some more personal questions here. So actually on, on myself, being an immigrant from Romania, I always felt that I had a chip on my shoulder. I felt that I had to prove myself. Did you feel the same in the beginning of your career? How did your background influence your motivation? As I mentioned, I'm ethnically Armenian, but my parents grew up in Iraq. They actually were born in Baghdad and Fallujah, of all places. And they moved to the United States a little bit before I was born. And the perspective that they gave me, and my dad, by the way, was, you know, the equivalent of a PhD in electrical engineering. He came to the United States like a math uh, engineer genius, and he couldn't work for seven years because he didn't have a visa, a green card to work. So he had to, you know, do like odds and ends, like math tutoring and, uh, you know, very low level math teacher jobs in order to make ends meet. And so I grew up with a perspective that I am so lucky to be born somewhere where I have the right to work. I'm so lucky to have, you know, English as one of my first languages. And there basically is no reason not to succeed. I mean, like truly, you know, with the perspective of what my parents went through and what they had to give up and leave to come to America, which is very similar to a lot of immigrants, I just felt like I really have no excuse. And so that has powered and motivated me throughout my entire life. It has given me just a different perspective of just how lucky I am to be somewhere where there is so much opportunity. And it's something that I think about every single day. Also, I've heard that different countries, the parents have different expectations from their children. Some countries are like, yeah, no, either doctor or engineer or doctor or lawyer. If you do anything else, it doesn't matter. Is it the same also with you? Like, were they like, no, you have to be a doctor or you have to be a lawyer? No, you know, I really give credit to my parents. By the time I got into high school, they were like, you know, we've done the best we can to give you like all the tools and the perspective that we have. And it's really up to you what you want to do from here. 
And actually, you know, it's kind of like the reverse close where you're like, oh my God, I better not screw it up because they're not micromanaging me or telling me what to do. I wouldn't say I had like a super clear path. I studied law at Harvard, pre-law at Harvard, thinking I wanted to go to law school. Then I interned at a law firm and I was like, definitely not for me. And I basically looked around and I was like, what are my smartest friends doing? Well, at the time, all of them were going to Wall Street with the exception of one that I really should have listened to that went to go work at Facebook in 2008. But I thought, you know, I don't know what I want to do, but why don't I go to like the hardest job to the most competitive job? And if I can make it in that job, I could probably make it in any job. And that's kind of the first, uh, the decision that led me to go into finance. But yeah, they were surprisingly relatively strict up into a certain point. And then they were like, it's your life and your decision. We're here as a sounding board, but they did not tell me what to do, which is very rare for Armenian parents. Usually the lawyer and doctor is very <laughs> front of mind for most. So I asked for, for some uh, input for this episode, uh, Eleanor, uh, Crisp, and also Ara. Eleanor was saying about you, has, uh, Sonina has one of the highest levels of energy and determination of the entire VC ecosystem. She can win literally any deal. On top of being one of the smartest in the ecosystem, she has the highest levels of emotional intelligence that allow her to understand people in and out. And actually, I've, I've heard several people saying this about you. So highest level of emotional intelligence. And also I see like during this interview, is it something that you try to develop? Does it come natural? Like how do you see this emotional intelligence part? Well, first off, that's so kind of Eleanor. She is a rock star. She's an amazing entrepreneur. And we had the pleasure of working together for a short period of time at Index. And I'm just humbled by, by her words. She's incredible. And I'm so grateful that she put us in touch originally. At the end of the day, venture capital is a people business. It's all about people. It's the entrepreneur. It's the people you recruit. It's your partners that you convince you know, to come to your side on an investment. It's the customers that you interact with or eventually the public market investors, you know, for an entre you know, for a company that goes IPO. And so if you're unable to connect with people, you're at a huge disadvantage, especially, by the way, in this remote world, right, where all you have is you lose the body language signal, you lose really like the intense eye contact and all you have is the screen. And so it's something that I've always thought about and put a lot of effort towards. Also, you never know who ends up where, and you really live and die on reputation in the VC world. And so you have to be very careful because uh, I think how you treat people, whether they're a founder that's going to return all the money for your fund or a founder that you know is going to shut down in a year, really matters because it's a small community. And like I said, people is the currency. And so I do spend a lot of time thinking about how to just continue improving on that skill. And also Ada from uh, Service Titan, a question actually that he asked you, what does she look for in other founders she backs? At the end of the day, it is such a personal journey, taking on an investor and backing an entrepreneur. And I think the most important thing is trust and alignment. And I think understanding someone's motivation, both sides, right? Like what is my motivation as an investor? What is their motivation as an entrepreneur? I think is where everything comes down to, because there are hard conversations and excellent VC funds will be willing to have those hard conversations. They are willing to tell you, I don't think you should take this term sheet, even though it's a crazy high price, or I really don't think your VP of sales is cutting it. Maybe you should think about someone else. 
or, you know, this decision you're about to make about this direction versus that direction. From my perspective, I'm not sure. Here's my thoughts. But at the end of the day, you know, you disagree and you commit. So you can never be like a Monday morning quarterback. You never say like after the fact, I told you so. And so I think having that trust and understanding is really important. What is the best and worst advice you have received? Probably that no one will care about your career more than you do. And so it's all on you. You know, I think it's easy to be like my company, my manager, my this, the timing, the market, et cetera. But at the end of the day, no one really owes you anything. And you have to take extreme ownership for your own career path. So that's probably the best advice I've gotten. The worst advice I've probably gotten is something along the lines of, oh, if this company is not like, if you're not fulfilling your potential at this company, like you should leave. Because I think that at the end of the day, every opportunity is what you make of it. And I, I think feeling more of like reactive versus proactive mindset just kind of puts limits on what you can do. Tell me your favorite book ever and the best book you read in the last six months. Favorite book ever, bar none, is Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None. It's about 10 people that mysteriously show up on an island, invited by a guest that they think they know, but they're not super sure. And one by one, the guests disappear. And it's like the best thriller. It's not like a crazy graphic thing. It's more like a intellectually like Hercule Poirot type of book. Agatha Christie is actually the second most published author after the Bible, which is amazing. So I'm, I've read every single one of her books, but that's my favorite. The best book I've read in the last six months is actually behind my desk here. It's called Educated by Tara Westover. And it is an incredible book. When you read it, you think this must have happened like 50 years ago. Like the author is actually my same age growing up in the U.S. And she talks about how her family didn't believe in education. They thought the government was corrupt. They didn't believe in healthcare, hospitals, all that stuff. And how her eyes get open to education and how it changes her world. And I highly recommend it. Tell me about a person that had an impact in your life. I played water polo growing up. As you know, it's a very tough sport, but it's a very team-oriented sport. And I had a coach, Maureen O'Toole, who is Olympic medalist. She is, was rated like the most underrated athlete for Sports Illustrated. And she taught me the hard work, discipline, and humility. And, you know, with water polo, even in high school, we'd wake up, we'd jump into a freezing pool at 5.30 a.m. We'd swim from 5.30 a.m. till 7, change on the pool deck, go to class all day, then do water polo practice from 3.30 to 5.30 p.m. College was even harder. And she always had a smile on her face. She always taught me that teamwork is, is incredible. But at the end of the day, again, you have to put in the work every single day. We probably played harder in practice so that when the games came, they were easy. And that really set the tone for me to expect excellence from myself, but also from all of my teammates. And a lot of those values I, I carry today. And so I really give her a lot of credit for shaping me in the very early years of my life. Discipline and humility. I like that. If Nina from now would meet Nina from eight years ago, would you tell her? There's so many things you care about in your 20s. And somebody a few years ago gave me this reference and they said, would the 65-year-old version of you 
what would they think about this decision or this problem right now? And that was like such a helpful framework because I was like, oh, when I'm like 65, am I really going to care that much about like how this email was not written exactly how I wanted or how this happened like this or, you know, this small detail was wrong. And I think it's kind of humorous, but it also just provides some levity in, you know, a lot of times we tend to be very intense. So that's probably one. The second thing is, you know, I think this idea that Steve Jobs said in the Stanford graduation speech, I believe it was, of connecting the dots and looking backwards. I can't tell you I had like this like perfectly planned out path to like get into venture capital. I kind of biased towards yes on opportunities that came my way and put my full heart into it and just kind of took a leap of faith of where it would lead me. And so I think being a little bit flexible on where the path of life takes you is really important. And then lastly, it's just really realizing that each day is a gift. You know, I think as you get older in your life and you experience your parents getting older or family relatives like grandparents passing away, I think it just reminds you that this is such a beautiful thing that we've been given, but it's limited. And everybody has 24 hours in a day and what you choose to do with those 24 hours and who you spend them with are you know, are, are important decisions and uh, not passive ones. And so I'd say probably those three things uh, I wish I had really taken to heart when I was a lot younger. Today's a gift. I love that. And I truly appreciate uh, you taking one hour uh, from your day to discuss with me. And one last question. What is your advice for women in VC as you kind of work in a male-dominated industry? I know that it's getting better, but what's your advice for women in VC? I think there's two mindsets you can have. One is a little bit of a like bummer for me, woe is me, victim mentality, where you kind of see everything as like the system is rigged against me. And oftentimes, you know, unconsciously it is fact. But I think the other mindset is, well, I'm an underdog. And if Silicon Valley or technology has taught us anything, it's that the best entrepreneurs are usually the underdogs, like those with a chip on their shoulder, those with something to prove. Those who were discounted or potentially even discriminated against or written off because they didn't go to a fancy school or whatever it is. And so that second approach I found has really fueled me and it has made me try to embrace what I can control and accept what I can't control. So the things I can control is like, I always try to be 10x better, you know, and keep myself to a super high standard. Second, I've also realized that I could make a lot more difference for women in venture capital if I myself am a successful woman in venture capital. You know, like getting to be a partner now means like I can play a really big role in mentoring and hiring women at Index or uh, women in VC in general. And so I think being fired up and trying to stay positive is probably the right approach. At the same time, you know, I'm not going to lie, like, Sometimes it is really hard to deal with blatant, you know, choices or having to be like the awkward only woman at the ski trip or only woman at the dinner or whatever it is. But I am really positive on the, the changes that have happened, the awareness that's out there. And I think there's never been a better time in the history to be a woman. And I'm really excited just to see where this movement will take us over time. So inspirational, the whole episode. Thank you very much for taking the time. Now I know why Eleanor uh, said all the great things that she said about you. Thank you very much for taking the time. This was wonderful. Thank you for all the thoughtful questions. I really appreciate it. <laughs>